somehow on the crucial matters, the men of wealth and power and privilege make the decisions of life and death for everybody else. And that's not democracy. They decide who lives and dies. This is Sound of Howard Zinn, the well-known author of A People's History of the United States. Zinn, who died in 2010, would have been 100 today. So to raise a glass, we're revisiting a historic speech that he gave. It's from a 1969 protest in Boston against the Vietnam War, one of the largest ever in the city's history. Over 100,000 people had gathered on Boston Common, a park downtown, on October 15th for the moratorium to end the war in Vietnam. This moratorium was a countrywide protest in which 2 million people took part in demonstrations, teach-ins, and other actions in over 200 cities. At this time, Zinn was teaching political science at Boston University and had released a book called SNCC, The New Abolitionists, based on his own experience in the radical student movement, and had more recently published another book called Disobedience and Democracy. It was recorded and broadcast by WBCN, a kind of legendary music and alternative news station. And just keep in mind the age of the tape. The sound is a little crunchy, and the first few sentences are missing, but... For some basic context, this was in the middle of the war. It had been escalating ever since the Johnson administration had sent in U.S. troops in 1965. And at this stage, there was basically no end in sight. Uh, Hundreds of thousands of people had been killed. And the current president, Nixon, was urging support of U.S. policy during ongoing peace negotiations in Paris. And at the same time, he was actually ramping up the war, including a bombing campaign in Cambodia. President Nixon wants us to strengthen his hand for the negotiations in Paris. And therefore, we should not just immediately get out of Vietnam. I do not want to strengthen President Nixon's hand in anything. And I see no reason for strengthening his hand in Paris I wonder what we are doing in Paris in the first place. I wonder what we are doing in Paris negotiating for the future of Vietnam. Vietnam is not our country. There is no reason for Americans to be in Paris helping to decide the future of Vietnam. President Nixon of California has no right to decide the future of Vietnam. What President Nixon means by strengthening his hand on negotiations is he wants to hold off to make sure that American power can remain in some way in Vietnam, that some of our underlings, that the people we put in power, that the people like Ziem, who we brought over from New Jersey to put in power, yeah, that's where we got him, you know. Ziem was in New Jersey, and we brought him over and put him in Saigon and said he is the free and independent representative of Vietnam, and he wants us here. And so we went with our bombers and we troops, and we destroyed that country. We don't need to strengthen Nixon's hand. 
And we don't wait for him to negotiate some shrewd way in which he can maintain American troops or American puppets in Saigon. The fact is, and we don't like to face this, that we have been fighting against a basically decent revolutionary movement in Vietnam. And I know that all revolutionary movements are impure, and I know that all revolutionary movements commit cruelties. I know that we had a revolutionary movement once, and we committed cruelties, and we were a slave nation, but we were right because we were fighting for our independence against the British. And Hanoi, yes, Hanoi, I, we, I mentioned that name, although Hanoi is supposed to be our enemy. The people of Hanoi have fought a long war for independence against foreign control, first against the French, then against the Americans, and while they were fighting against the French, we were helping the French. And they've been trying to set up a new social structure in Vietnam, and it's an imperfect one, but they're trying to do something for the peasants, and they're trying to spread medical care and education. They're trying to create a decent society, and they're making mistakes. And we haven't done so great about creating decent societies in every part of our land either. But we ought to leave them alone. The troops should be brought back from Vietnam as fast as ships and planes can carry them. President Nixon wants three years to get out of Vietnam, and we're here today to tell him that he does not have three years. We are not going to wait three years. We have waited a long time. And we have watched the coffins come back from Vietnam now for years and years and years. And we have watched the faces of the Vietnamese peasants on television as their huts were being burned for years and years and years. And we don't want to wait three more years. We don't want to wait three months. And if by November 15th, President Nixon has not begun the withdrawal of troops from Vietnam, then we are going to gather in Washington on November 15th. I think what's important is that we are beginning to reassess American democracy. And we need badly to do that. Every once in a while in the history of a country, the people of that country have got to take a good look at themselves and to decide if they are fulfilling the ambitions and the aims and the ideals that they set out to do. And we need to do that, and we need to go beyond Vietnam, and we need to take a deep and searching look at ourselves and our behavior and what has happened to us, what has become of us since those days when we wrote the words of the Declaration of Independence. We have gone very far from those words. 
because it's not just Vietnam. And I wish it were just that Vietnam were a mistake. I wish it were just that Vietnam were an era, you know, and that basically everything was okay. Basically, we were doing good things. Basically, our foreign policy was okay, but we made this just one bad mistake in Vietnam. But when I look at the history of American foreign policy, I say that's not true. Because we have been behaving in a bullying way all over the world and for a long time. I know we don't like to say that about ourselves. We like to think that we are the country we dreamed of being. And in our best moments, you know, we think of ourselves as a good and a decent people, and we don't want to do anybody any harm, but we have done a lot of harm. I don't mean just us, of course. Every powerful country, every rich country, every country that becomes very big and very important in the world begins to bully other countries. It doesn't matter what you call a country. It doesn't matter what you call a democratic or totalitarian. It doesn't matter what label you give the country. When wealth and power accumulate in a country, uh, there's an attempt to ravage all the people around it. And we started by exterminating the Indians, and then we enslaved the blacks, and then we took over half of Mexico, and then we moved across the country, and then we moved across halfway across the world, and we took the Philippines and we suppressed the rebels in the Philippines 60 years ago, 70 years ago. And since World War II, we have taken over the mantle of the British Empire, the French Empire, the Dutch Empire, the German Empire, all the empires of the world rolled into one in American power, and we call that taking up the responsibility for the world. We... We have 3,000 military bases all over the world to make us feel more secure. We have 429 major military bases all over the world, and I suppose after we get out of Vietnam, we might only have 400 major military bases left all over the world. We have trained 200,000 officers in Latin America. And why, basically, so they can suppress the peasants in their countries and maintain their power. And just earlier this spring, I read where in Argentina, you see, one of the countries that we support, and one of the countries in which we have military missions, the police used tear gas to break up a religious procession because they were afraid that the procession would end up as a demonstration against the sugar mills in Argentina. Because you know those people work in mills and mines down there, and they work in the fields, and they make very, very little money. And we train the officers to keep them down. And we send their dictators the arms to keep them in power. And our companies go there, and they set up huge plants, and they make an awful lot of money, and these people are exploited, and that is what we mean by world responsibility. So it's not just Vietnam, not just Vietnam at all. We, we have come a long way from a nation that itself was struggling for independence, and now here we are sending our troops all over the world to make sure that nobody lifts a head. 
Just look around the world and see the way people are living. Is it any wonder they want a revolt? Is it any wonder that the people in Africa, the people in Latin America, the people in the Middle East, the people in Asia want to make revolutions and want to change their lives? And what are we doing about that? We are sending our military troops all over the world to keep them down. Is that what we meant by setting up a great and democratic country? I wonder at this point how much democracy we have in the United States. I know we can gather. I, uh, I know we can gather in meetings. We can speak our minds. We can speak our minds, and Nixon can do what he wants. We can gather in these great meetings, and Nixon says, you can gather, and you can talk, and I'll still keep on doing what I'm doing. And that's maybe a little bit of democracy, but it's not enough democracy. It's not enough democracy when a few men in the country have the power to send our sons overseas to be killed, and when they have the power to threaten and kill people all over the world, and we do not have the power to stop them at a time when it's obvious that the people of this country are sick and tired of this war and want it to stop. You know, we grew up thinking, and we learned this in the books, you know, those story books that we get in, in, in school, history books. Now we learn that we have democracy, and you know, the, the way we know we have democracy is we go out and vote. Yeah, we vote, we vote for congressmen, we vote for senators, and you know, there's a, it's a beautiful system, we were told. It just works beautifully. And it's a checks and balances and separation of power and the president of the Supreme Court, and that's democracy. We were fooled. We were fooled about that. That's not democracy. Because with all the checks and balances and with all the elections and with all the representatives and senators and all the machinery that pretends to be democracy, somehow we do not yet have democracy in this country. Because... Somehow, on the crucial matters, the men of wealth and power and privilege make the decisions of life and death for everybody else. And that's not democracy. They decide who lives and dies. They decide who gets how much money. You know, that's what taxes mean. That's what the tax structure is all about. The tax structure decides who gets how much money, who is left with how much money, among other things. And all you have to do is look at the tax system in the United States to see that the wealthy control this country. I know that's a radical thing to say, and you're not supposed to say radical things. You're not supposed to say that the wealthy control the country. But it does not take much observation to see that that's true. Who runs the city of Boston? Is it the tenants or the landlords? Who decides what happens to the air in the city of Boston? The people who breathe it or the gas companies of Boston? Who decides what happens to the air all over the country? The people who breathe that air or the owners of Standard Oil? Standard Oil made a billion dollars last year. The president of Standard Oil made $289,000 
And then, I guess because he was desperate, they gave him a, a bonus of $160,000. And I just talked to a man who works as a maintenance man where, in, the, in the institution where I work, and he makes $4,000 a year. And he pays taxes on that $4,000 a year. That's not democracy. That's not democracy when we have people living the way they're living in, in Boston and in every major city in the United States today. It's not democracy for black people. It's not democracy for white people. And the courts and the law, you know, we grew up thinking the courts, the law, the whole machinery of government, it's kind of neutral. It's, it, it tries its best to do right. And somehow it turns out that the courts and the law, somehow they end up doing more for the people who already have power, for the people who are already living well, than the people who are not living well. And you can tell that because when a poor family in South Boston occupies a vacant apartment, an apartment which is designed for somebody to pay a lot of money, and they can't pay, afford to pay that much money, but they want a decent apartment, and so they move into that apartment. That's not a very violent act. That's not a terrible thing. If we had a decent society, they would not have to do such a thing. If we had a decent society, we would not be spending $100 billion on arms and letting people fester in these holes in which they live in all these cities in the country. There's something wrong with that. And when this tenant moves into this apartment, the police come, the police come, and the courts come with their injunctions, and the whole power of the city descends upon them and says, you get out of that apartment. That's not democratic. That's not a democracy. That's not a government for the people. We have not yet created a government for the people in this country, and we have got to begin creating such a government that really is for the people. We're all befogged, you see, and we're all tied up with slogans and symbols, communism, democracy, you know, that's the thing that got us into Vietnam. Uh, 40,000 men killed because somebody threw the word communism at us, and you know, and that, that unsettles us. And we've got to get away from this kind of sloganeering and deciding what's good and what's bad by whether it's communism or capitalism or socialism or imperialism or right. We've got to take a look at things very carefully. We've got to examine them and see what are they doing? What are they for? None of the governments of the world, whatever you call them, are worth, any, worth anything. You know, we're, at a, we're still at an early stage in world history. I know every, every major country thinks it is all very close to perfection, just has a little ways to go. We have a long way to go. We're a long way from democracy. The problem that people have all over, all over this country and all over the world, is to begin taking the power from those people who now have it in the governments all over the world and to begin returning that power to large numbers of people who need it because they are suffering under this power. And what we have got to begin to do today is something, we've got to stop the war in Vietnam. Yes, we've got to do that. But we mustn't rest until we do that. 
But we've got to do something else, it seems to me. We cannot depend on election campaigns. And we cannot depend on political parties. You know, you look at the history of this country, and the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, they both engaged in these adventures overseas. They both, that's what we mean by a bipartisan foreign policy. They agree when it comes to foreign policy, and there's not much difference in them either when it comes to domestic policy. They have not been the answer for us. We have got to create new political forces in this country, and that doesn't mean elections and doesn't mean new parties, although that might come. We have got to begin assembling ourselves much more often than we do, in large groups and in small groups. We've got to meet all the time. We've got to have more moratoria. We've got to take more time off from the things we do every day because what we do every day is we fill the spaces in the machine to keep the machine going. And the machine is going to go as it has always gone, and that means in the direction of destruction, in the direction of privilege, unless we extract ourselves from the machine more and more and begin to create trouble for it in various ways. And I mean that. I mean that. We've, we, we have been trying to create trouble, yes, for the administration in order to get out of the war in Vietnam. And that's part of democracy, when people are harassed and people have been taking advantage of, that people get together and begin to create trouble. And so I'm suggesting that we dedicate ourselves today to getting together more often, yes, here, where we work, where we live, wherever we can get together to begin creating a new political power, a power that somehow comes from people and not from elected representatives, because, you know, the elected representatives cannot really represent us very well. We've got to begin creating this new power because we still, I th we still want to create a society which is a decent one. We want to create a world in which we don't have to worry about our kids growing up and being sent off to war. We want to create a society in which we take the resources, the enormous resources that we have in this world, and we distribute it justly among people. And we stop, stop spending all of these resources on destruction and start using it for constructive purposes. That's what we want to do. And if we begin to do that, then we are doing something for all these little children who are in this crowd and who someday may grow up then to thank us a little bit. You just heard a lightly edited version of Howard Zinn's speech at the moratorium to end the Vietnam War, recorded October 15, 1969, by WBCN. To hear the full thing, check out the archives at the Tamament Library at NYU, who, as part of the centenary, are planning to make a variety of Howard Zinn audio available to the public online. To learn more about Zinn's internationalism and peace efforts during the Vietnam War, do check out Mike Konsevich's recent article on the Jacobin website. Thanks for listening.